good day to you, Des. How are you? Good afternoon, Paul. Excellent. And this week we're talking about great lateral thinkers. Mm. Um, so I'm going to draw some examples from my book, Think Like an Innovator, of great right. thinkers and innovators. And who do you think might be in my selection, my choice? I have no idea. I'm quite intrigued. Uh, um, I mentioned a few people, but uh, I thought Thomas Edison would be at the top of the list, but clearly he's not. And uh, uh, theologically, I'd have thought Jesus would be there. He was a great lateral thinker in terms of moral behavior. But uh, I, I'm just hopeful that Edward de Bono won't be in there. <laughs> Don't worry, he's not. He's not. So it's not been easy to select six. And in fact, uh, I would not claim for a moment that these are the six greatest lateral thinkers of all time. Yeah or six greatest innovators, or even six greatest thinkers. Mm -hmm. um, but they're, they're exemplars in their own way. Each of them I've chosen for a reason, because they show a different aspect of... In fact, any great thinker is a great lateral thinker, because by definitions, great thinkers are people who have thought of something new and different. If they've just mm -hmm. repeated other people's thoughts, then they're mm -hmm. not a great thinker. Yeah. And therefore, uh, by diverging from conventional wisdom and conventional thought, they've displayed uh, an aspect of lateral thinking. Uh, but my, I'm going to do them in, in vaguely historical order. And my first choice comes from ancient history. Um, and this is a man, and it's an African. Who do you think it might be? No idea. Well, it's Hannibal. Hannibal um, lived from 247 to 182 BC. He was Rome's greatest enemy and one of the finest military strategists of yeah. all time. And a man who had the bright idea of taking elephants over the Alps. Correct. And how, <laughs> da how dare he was that? He did something no one else had ever done. He took an army across uh, the Alps from Spain all the way around and attacked Italy from the north, which was a terrible shock for the Romans because they never expected that. No, if you're going to attack Italy from Tunisia, which is where Carthage was, he was a Carthaginian, you'd expect a fleet to sail across the um, Mediterranean and tack somewhere in southern Italy. But no, he started off in Spain, which was part of the Carthaginian Empire, and he took a, a large army, um, maybe uh, 50,000 men around through uh, the Alps, and they suffered terribly going through the Alps. Uh, they lost a lot of uh, men and uh, animals. Um, and then they, when they appeared in northern Italy, it terrified the Romans because mm -hmm. also he did something else which was very lateral. He brought elephants and elephants with sharpened tusks. And the Roman soldiers had never seen elephants before. And when the elephants charged, mm -hmm. they roared and they absolutely petrified the poor people who never seen it. was like a monster from, from another galaxy as far as the Romans were concerned. That's pretty good. I mean, I, I actually studied him in school. I've just suddenly remembered I did Latin and we did Livy. And he, he was obviously very important in his day because Livy has a whole chapter on Hannibal's doings in Roman times. So the Romans took him very seriously and he must have made a very big impact on them. Well, he did. And uh, not, he was a great leader. Uh, his, his people were very loyal to him. He turned a lot of the tribes of northern Italy against Rome uh, and he became uh, and they allied with him. And he won uh, three very big battles. And the, the most famous is the Battle of Cannae. Um, and he opposed an army of 50,000 Romans. And he drew up his army facing the Romans. And then he put his very best soldiers on the flanks. And then uh, as the Romans advanced, his centre retreated and drew the Romans in. And then the flanks closed in and encircled the Romans in a sort of crescent. 
Um, and most of the Romans on that day were killed or captured, 50,000 of them. It was a, a massive defeat for the Romans. And it's been a tactic that's been employed many times um, after that, and is taught in military colleges around the world as the Battle of Cannae uh, and a great tactic. Well, that's very impressive. I mean, you've taught me things about Anima, taught me a lot more than I need to know, I think, but uh, he's certainly very impressive for his time. Um, so who's your second um, great lateral thinker? My second, uh, I, well, let's make, start preface that by asking, what do you think is the most important innovation in the history of mankind? Which single idea or innovation had the greatest impact? Well, I'd have thought the computer, the digital computer, well, that's a long certainly way. a contender. Uh, the internet is a contender. Vaccines are a contender. But mm. my choice, if I was pushed, would be the printing press. And my second choice as a great lateral thinker is Johannes Gutenberg, the German, uh, who lived from 1398 to 1468, mm. uh, just 70 years. And um, he was a blacksmith, a goldsmith, a printer. And he introduced the concept of the printing press and movable type. And before Gutenberg, all books had been handwritten or stamped out with wooden blocks. And this made books rare, expensive, and prone to transcription errors. And therefore knowledge was restricted to just a handful of wealthy or religious people. There were only a few hundred books in Europe before mm. Gutenberg. And he combined two existing ideas. He combined the power of a wine press and the detail of a coin punch. So coin punches were used to punch out uh, metal or uh, bronze or silver coins. And he said, if I put an image of a letter in something that's like a coin punch, and then I arrange it with a printing press to print, I, I can print a whole page over and over again. And then I can change the movable type and print the next page. And by doing that, he, he was able to print works relatively quickly. And initially it was used to print the Gutenberg Bible, mm -hmm. but subsequently it was used to print pamphlets, uh, seditious documents, uh, scientific texts, texts of all sorts of nature. And in fact, there would never have been a Renaissance or a Reformation mm -hmm. or the scientific revolution without the printing press. Yeah. Did you know that Gutenberg actually features in a classical joke? There's this guy at a at a party and he meets a, he meets a bookseller and he says, uh, very interesting book. And he says, uh, he says, I threw away an old book last week. It was a Gutenberg Bible. I said, oh, my God, he said, the last Gutenberg Bible that came from the market sold for $10 million. And he said, ah, this one wouldn't have been worth anything. Somebody had called Martin Luther had scribbled his name all over. It. <laughs> and ruined it. Absolutely ruined it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah, well, I certainly can't disagree with that decision. I mean, it's had a, a huge impact on civilization and the world and the development of everything. And on our house, which is now literally filled with books and uh, Indeed. You can't move for books. Indeed. And uh, it promoted the equalization of knowledge in a sense. Before, knowledge was restricted to very learned people, um, mm. very wealthy people, very powerful people. But once books became available to the common man, then yeah. people like you and I could read. Has he been replaced by Wikipedia? Um, it's said that the only thing that comes close to uh, the printing press in terms of its impact on communication worldwide is the Internet. Okay, so, who's, who's, your, who's your third choice? My third choice is a scientist and um, one of the greatest scientists of all time, I think, and someone who had one of the most remarkable ideas that any human being has ever had. And it's Charles Darwin, the naturalist who expounded the theory of evolution. He was born in England in 1809. And he studied at Cambridge University, where I went. Uh, and he studied divinity, but he was also very interested in, in natural sciences and nature. 
and he was offered a position as the naturalist on a ship called the Beagle, which was the going Beagle. to do a scientific expedition around the world, commanded by Robert Fitzroy. It set sail in 1831. And on that journey, he studied thousands of plants, animals, and fossils all around the world, and particularly studied uh, the different uh, species on the different islands of the Galapagos. And he conceived an amazing theory, which was the theory of evolution by natural selection. But he came back and he continued to work on this for the next 20 years. He gathered a tremendous amount of data before he published his seminal work, The Origin of Species, in 1859, because he knew that it would cause a storm of controversy and, and be a very radical idea. So he wanted to get all of his um, evidence lined up and he prepared. And I think he was very reluctant to publish, but because another chap called Alfred Wallace came along with similar ideas he felt forced to publish and the book was a sensation uh, and it caused inspiration and indignation around the world he was mocked and ridiculed for it but it's now accepted as one of the greatest scientific theories well a lot of people think that he came up with the idea of the survival of the fittest mm. but that's not actually part of the theory of evolution that was due to herbert spencer and i think darwin actually gets uh, the credit for that actually i i'm not a great fan i agree with your first two choices but i'm not a great fan of darwin because uh, I, I do not believe that I am spiritually descended from apes in any sense. Physically, maybe, yes, but I don't think Darwin really explains spiritual evolution, mental evolution. And, you know, I mean, I think human beings are very different from other animals. And I think there's a, there is a missing link. There is a missing gap there. And nobody has ever successfully filled that. But I agree that it was an interesting theory. Yes, well, he, he didn't set out to explain mental development, much more physical development. And a religious yeah. person would say, you're different from a monkey because God infused you with a soul. Yeah. But that's my third choice. And Okay. Um, but these are the people you'd like to invite to a dinner party if you want. Indeed, to it would be a fantastic yeah. dinner party. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so who's your, who's your fourth choice? So I, I gave a talk a while ago on, on great in thinkers and innovators, and somebody said, Paul, there aren't any women in the list. And um, it, it was true. Ever since then, I felt slightly embarrassed that so many of my examples from history are men. And of course, men did dominate thought and, and science and so many other fields. And so I felt I should choose um, a woman to go in. And there are many great women from history who I could have chosen. Uh, Florence Nightingale was a great lateral thinker and innovator. Marie Curie, the only uh, person to get two Nobel Prizes in different fields. But I've chosen someone a little bit more prosaic, um, who I think was a lateral thinker. And that's Anita Roddick, uh, who lived from 1942 to 2007. And she was the founder of The Body Shop. Uh, she was a businesswoman, an activist and a campaigner. And The Body Shop was remarkably different from conventional cosmetic stores at the time because it offered quality skincare products in plain refillable containers and sample sizes with no advertising or hype. Typically at the time, uh, shampoos and um, cosmetics were in very fancy, expensive glass bottles. She used little plastic bottles and she offered refills and she did all sorts of creative lateral things from a business point of view and the whole thing became a movement it became it went viral and she became a spokesperson for green issues and fair trade and all sorts of other things she was a great lateral thinker in that yeah. way well it's a clever idea because everyone's got a body you know everyone's because got a body. you've got a big market you know when she started out she, she had a little shop in brighton and it was between two funeral parlors and they complained that her store's name would hurt their business, the body shop. 
So That's very funny. <laughs> she went to the local press with a story saying the undertakers are intimidating a woman entrepreneur starting a business. And as a result, as a result many people came to see that well, the store wasn't what all the fuss was about. And she was very, very a great publicist and very high profile, a lot of issues. Very interesting. Very interesting choice. So who's your fifth choice? Please don't let it be Elvis Presley. Well, I was very tempted to put in uh, a musician, a David Bowie or um, Freddie Mercury or Madonna or Miles Davis, all great lateral thinkers, great um, leaders of musical change and revolution. So I was tempted, but I resisted that. And I, I put in just a couple more uh, examples. It's very difficult to choose. Well, if you're going to choose 100, it's quite easy. But if you've got to choose six, it's very, very difficult. It's very difficult. My fifth choice is a Spaniard. I can see you're thinking, you're pondering here. It's Salvador Dali. Salvador oh, yeah. Dali yeah. was a great surrealist painter. He lived from 1904 to 1989. When he appeared on the US TV game show, What's My Line, uh, which is an old show, the panel members were blindfolded and had to question the guest to determine his identity. And almost every question they asked, he answered, yes. Are you a performer? Yes. Are you a writer? Yes. Are you an artist? Yes. <laughs> and then some, one panelist said, there's nothing this man does not do. And he, he was an artist and he was a sculptor. He worked with jewellery. He worked with, with all sorts of different media. And he revolutionised art in a way that only a handful of other people, Picasso maybe is another one who is similar. One of his most famous paintings is called The Persistence of Memory. And it, it involves images of soft melting pocket watches sliding off a table. Yeah, that's um, beautiful. Yeah. He did all sorts of things which were really, really highly imaginative. And he was a very flamboyant extrovert character who created tremendous um, publicity for himself. He was, he was an yeah. egotist who was yeah. desperate for attention. Yeah, he, was, he was a true surrealist. He invited a girl back to his room, uh, stripped her naked, put a fried egg on each shoulder and then pushed her out into the corridor. <laughs> <laughs> you just that's make surrealism. That up. That's surrealism. No, no, that's true. No, he was, he was a, a revolutionary in surreal art and a leader in um, so the surrealist movement. And it always yeah. reminds me of the famous football score. Did you ever hear that? Um, uh, Real Madrid won, surreal Madrid fish. <laughs> very good, <laughs> very nice. But did you know that the interesting thing, thing about Salvador Dali, the very interesting facts about him, he had an older brother who was also named Salvador Dali. And the older brother was born in 1901 and died of gastroenteritis in 1903 before Salvador Dali was born. Oh. The following year, the Dalis had another son who went on to be the great artist. And, and he used to be taken to visit the grave of his elder brother. And he saw his own name on the gravestone, Salvador wow. Dali. Uh, can you imagine the effect that would have on a little boy? That, is, that explains a lot, I think. Well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> but he was uh, a, one of the great lateral thinkers and great characters of the last century. And someone who broke the rules wherever he went, which is something that lateral thinkers do. <laughs> OK, so who's your next choice? Well, I've only got one left. I'm very conscious that so far my choices, apart from Hannibal, have been Europeans. Uh, and I feel I ought to uh, pay some credit to uh, the great innovators and thinkers from other continents. So my final choice is Muhammad Yunus, who was born in 1940. And he's a Bangladeshi founder of the Grameen Bank and a pioneer of microcredit. He was a Nobel Prize winner. So he was born the son of a goldsmith in, in Chittagong in modern day Bangladesh. And he was the third of 14 children, five of whom died as infants. And he studied economics and he went into banking. 
Uh, and he led a group of his students uh, on a field trip to a poor village and they met a woman who made bamboo chairs. And she had to borrow 20 cents to buy the bamboo for each chair that she made and then she'd sell and then she'd pay back the, the, the loan shark. And uh, he tried an experiment using his own funds. He made a loan of $27 <laughs> to a group of 40 women basket weavers. And he found that even a tiny amount like that made a big difference. And so he came up with um, the concept of micro loans, tiny loans to small groups of people, often women, with no security. And it was the exact opposite of what banks were doing. So banks would say, we'll lend it, the minimum we'll lend is $1,000, you need security, you have to fill in all these forms and you have to give all of these guarantees. He did the opposite. He said, we'll lend $10, $20 with no security. And that transformed entrepreneurship in Bangladesh. And it, was, uh, it started many, many small businesses. It was copied by many other countries, and he won the Nobel Prize for his idea. The trouble is there are probably very, very many people like that, but we don't hear about them. You know, we hear about yes. the, the big names that were of history, but sometimes it's the small, the micro names that actually make the biggest impact on society. Yes, but he innovated with a moral purpose um, to help people, and he innovated by minimising, by making something smaller, which is, which is a little unusual. Uh, but mm -hmm. his great success created... A lot of envy and resentment and after he criticized the the, the government for corruption the the bangladesh government launched an investigation into the grameen bank and ordered his removal as managing director because they don't like lateral thinkers and um, one person i'm surprised hasn't appeared in your list is albert einstein albert einstein was a fantastic lateral thinker and his uh, theory of, of uh, relativity, general relativity, was an amazing thing and he came up with all these ideas yeah. very early in it's, his career the humorous version of the theory of relativity is that time seems a lot longer when you're with your relatives. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> now then, what was the puzzle we set in the last episode, Des? It was this. It, uh, can you name 100 consecutive integers, none of which is a prime number? And it's a tough little puzzle, isn't it? It is. But when you see the answer, it's absolutely beautiful. Shall, uh, shall I give the solution? Yes, please. Yes. Well, if you look, take any number, let's say like uh, take 101 and take 101 factorial. Now, that's all the numbers, 101 by 100 by 99 by 98, all the way down to 321. So it's a very, very big number indeed. So let's call that number T. So T plus 2, T plus 3, T plus 4, T plus 5, all the way up as far as T plus 100. None of those is a prime number. First one's got a factor 2. Second's got a factor of three, third's got a factor of four, and the last one's got a, a factor of 100. So it's, it's very big numbers, but of course, it's now leads to an unsolved problem in mathematics in how can you do that with the smallest number possible? Nobody knows that. So fun questions that you ask sometimes give rise to really good research problems in mathematics, sometimes that nobody's able to solve. But surely, Des, that means that if you can specify 100 consecutive non-prime numbers, you could specify a thousand or a million or 10 really? million or a hundred million consecutive numbers, which are not primes. Yeah, they're integers. So there could yeah, be, yeah, it's yeah. possible that it's somewhere in the sequence of numbers. And we know the sequence of numbers is infinite. Yeah. There yeah. is a string of a million or 10 million consecutive numbers, none of which is a prime. And yet we know correct. that there are an infinite number of primes. So That's how can both those so you, statements be true? You can, you, can make, <laughs> you can make the gaps between the primes as large as you like, because there are infinitely many of them. They're just stretched out, but you, you will, but you will always get another prime number. Can I leave people today with the lateral thinking puzzle that I think is new? 
and that is a man who is being interviewed by man in jail, uh, a prisoner in jail, and he's being interviewed by a social worker. And the social worker is surprised to find out that he's got lots of friends and lots of relatives, but none of them come to the jail to visit him. But he doesn't seem to mind, although he likes them a lot. Oh, and is this to protect him? No. Is it for their own safety? No. Uh, and does he have um, a medical condition that we need to know about? No. Does the crime that he committed, is that relevant? That's irrelevant. Murder, he could have been a thief, he could have been a fraudster, anything at all. But uh, Is there a benefit to him in them not visiting him? No. So there's no benefit to anybody? No, he's, no, he's got lots of relatives and friends, he likes them a lot, but none of them ever comes to the jail to visit him. Well, that is very interesting. All right. Good, good. So we'll leave, leave people to, to, to ponder that until our next episode. Um, and and I'll, I'll leave you with a something I learned this week, which I think is very profound, and it's a very short statement. Nothing tops plain pizza. <laughs> very nice. That's true, isn't it? I mean, not, yeah, nothing, nothing tops plain pizza. Plain pizza, right? <laughs> and on that dreadful note, that desperate and appalling note, I think we'll stop this uh, podcast. Thank you, Paul. And I, find, I would mention that all of those stories I told today uh, were very brief extracts from my book, Think Like an Innovator, which has 76 uh, more detailed histories of great thinkers and uh, innovators. Mm-hmm.